Hey, welcome to Wayfair. On today's podcast, we're going to share an event that took place at Central last Sunday evening on November 16th, 2016. The event was titled Journey for Justice, Reconciliation, Solidarity, and the Legacy of Sandra Bland. Now, the evening was an interview-style event with Dr. Laura Levins, a professor at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and a member at Central, and uh, our special guest, Reverend Hannah Bonner. Reverend Bonner is a minister and an activist who's worked for justice and for racial equality in many ways, but especially in response to the death of Sandra Bland. Now, you'll hear a lot more about Hannah Bonner's work in the interview, so I won't spoil it here. But just in case you've not heard the story of Sandra Bland, who you'll also hear much more about later, we'd like to set the stage just a little bit for the discussion to follow. Now, Bland was an activist and a person of faith. She shared videos on YouTube with the hashtag SandySpeaks. She encouraged racial reconciliation and really worked to highlight racial inequalities. While in Texas, on University Drive of her alma mater, Bland was pulled over for not using a signal when changing lanes. During the stop, the situation escalated, and Bland was arrested. Now, three days after her arrest, she was found in her jail cell. Uh, The coroner classified her death at that time as a suicide. Now, Sandra's life of faith and activism, along with the circumstances surrounding her arrest and her death, really brought this classification into question. There's a lot more to the story, much of which you'll hear about, but soon after her death, a prayer vigil began, led by our special guest, uh, to honor Sandra's life and to challenge law enforcement to release more information. But still, a lot of the details surrounding Sandra Bland's death have not been revealed. Well, I think this gets us ready to hear the interview in a little bit. But since this event was over an hour long, we've edited some parts at the beginning and the end, but we've really left the entirety of the interview. A couple of the choir pieces and the audience questions at their end may find their way into some subsequent episodes of Wayfair. Uh, Central was also joined by some other folks this evening, including members of Quinn Chapel AME Church here in Lexington, Kentucky, and their pastor, Ken Golfin. We're so grateful for their participation with us. We're also extremely grateful that we were joined this evening by the University of Kentucky Black Voices Choir. This is a dynamic group of young people from the University of Kentucky. Uh, The choir has been going on there for over 40 years. This evening, they were led by director Monique Shanks and accompanied by Doug Ford. And we were blessed by their fabulous music, but not just by that, by their spirit of love and of openness and their willingness to participate in our discussion. Uh, It was just wonderful to have them with us. So I'm going to get out of the way. We're going to begin with some music, and then we'll continue with Reverend Bonner.
say that during the time of the Roman Emperor uh, the people that they were most afraid of were the artists because you can kill a person but you can't kill their art you can't destroy the influence that it continues to have for generations 
And so the empire, uh, the forces that seek to oppress, always fear the artists most. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, I want to add a word of thanks for your presence tonight. Uh, my name is Dr. Laura Rogers-Levins. I am a professor at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. We're a small um, seminary located up in Georgetown College. We have space up there. And um, we are so thankful that Central Baptist has partnered with us um, to help uh, my good friend, Reverend Hannah Bonner, to come and share with us over the next three days. We'll be doing a lot of events together. Um, Hannah and I uh, met almost 10 years ago now. It's been about, yes. Uh, we met as first year graduate students, both of us mostly right fresh out of college. Did you take a year off? Mm -hmm. I didn't. No, we were just bright-eyed um, new graduate students uh, together. and. Uh, like I shared this morning, I learned that Hannah Bonner was a truth teller. Um, she's a truth teller, though, with the goal of community and solidarity and justice. So it is truth with a purpose. Um, I won't go into all of the details, but I will say sometimes when Hannah told the truth in my presence, it was like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh, yes, finally someone has said something sensible because we're all running around crazy. And then sometimes when she would tell the truth, man, it would make me uncomfortable because she would be right. And I didn't want her to be right. I wanted to stay in my own little bubble of insensibleness or silliness or whatever it was that we were doing. Um, however, I am a better person for both of those experiences. And I can tell you, it is important to have a truth teller in your life. It is always important. And so um, what I've, I've done is I asked Hannah um, some months ago when we started planning um, to come and tell us her journey, to come and share with us her journey for justice. Um, Hannah has been um, a clergy, a main person um, involved in the uh, the public and the day-to-day -day campaigns to find out what, ha what happened to Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland was a woman who died mysteriously in custody after being um, wrongfully arrested in Waller County, Texas, near Houston, a little over a year ago today. I'll let Hannah sort of tell that story. Um, but I thought before, uh, and we, as we, decide, we talked about how to do this, before we get to that point in her life, um, I wanted to ask her um, about the beginning times, about when you started down this journey um, of learning what solidarity meant, of learning what it meant to pursue justice. Um, and you mentioned that it was an event in our own seminary at the Divinity School. So if you would share about that moment in our lives together, and I will, I will grin, breathe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Rogers Levins. Um, I enjoy calling her that, as I said this morning, because she wasn't a doctor the last time I saw her. So um, <laughs> it is, uh, it's amazing to see the ways that people um, continue and grow and the core stays the same. So it's, uh, it's good to be here with, with her and with all of you. 
Um, and it's an important uh, question that you raise because I get, I get asked a lot um, why I do the things I do and how I got to be the way that I am. And I think it's important to note that that doesn't just happen, that it emerges out of community um, and that it emerges out of accountability and it emerges out of relationships. And so um, I think that it's important to tell that part of the story. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, so yes, when um, <coughs> we got to go to uh, Duke Divinity School together at an interesting point in its history, um, that uh, the uh, Duke lacrosse scandal was really making things very interesting in Durham at that time. And um, the, um, I was a, a part of a, I was a part of many classes and discussions, all kinds of different discussion groups in the seminary and around the city, um, as well as trying to take as many classes as I could to try to understand. And um, one of the groups that I was in was intentionally, you know, supposed to be working towards racial um, reconciliation um, as part of the, the seminary program. And um, we, were, we were also, about half of that group was also taking a class um, about uh, um, our theology, the way that it has developed, uh, the ways that it's been used poorly and well at different points. Um, and one day, before we came to our racial reconciliation group, um, we heard a lecture in class about the way that, um, that certain passages were used during colonization. Um, and so in the colonization of the, the continent of Africa, that people had used a certain text in God, there is no darkness at all, um, to say that if there's darkness in someone, there's not God in them. And it was an incredibly difficult uh, lecture, and we came to Racial Reconciliation Group afterwards, and the uh, administrator who was leading the group asked us, you know, told us we were going to start the group with prayer, and he wanted us to pray a prayer based in those words. In God, there is no darkness at all. Um, and there was a young African-American woman sitting next to me, and she said, I cannot say those words today. And I said, I cannot say them either. And it became quite an affair. Um, the, uh, the administrator saw us as challenging his authority. Um, he accused us of saying that we would never preach from 1 John or teach it, which was not true. We just couldn't say those words that day. Um, and as, as, uh, as we came to, uh, he called us to his office individually uh, to tell us that we needed to submit and to say the words. Um, and uh, it was very difficult for both of us. And the next time that we came to that racial reconciliation group together, um, I, he was very angry, and I was very, uh, I was doing the white girl thing, the white fragility thing, of, um, I was kind of curled up in the fetal position in my chair, and, you know, in shock that there was, that there was an, an authority figure that was not meant to protect me, because as a white woman, of course, authority figures are meant to protect me, right? I didn't realize at the time that that's not the experience of everybody. And so, uh, you know, this young woman decided to tell the group what had happened, privately behind closed doors with him, and he became very angry. 
And um, I said, you know, because at the time I thought, you know, we were disrupting the conversation, that we were trying to have racial reconciliation. But actually, you know, there was injustice was happening in the midst of this conversation. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm burdening this. I need to just, I need to leave because, so you can get back to racial reconciliation. Um, so I tried to leave and the, the other um, women of color in the group asked me not to and so I stayed. And this went on for some time. The administrator tried to have us, you know, um, tried to interrupt our, our, our jobs, our student placements. He talked to our professors and tried to get our, our grades affected, um, tried to get us um, in trouble with the school. And I finally came to the group one day. And uh, we, kept, we had continued to meet. Um, and I came to the group one day and I said, um, you know, I've talked to my pastor and I've talked to my parents and I've talked to my advisor and I've talked to every source of authority in my life and they just, they really feel like this is just taking too much of a toll on me. And, you know, I'm just a burden anyway. I'm just getting in the way of you doing the racial reconciliation work that you need to do. And if I left, then you'd be able to get back to reconciliation. Because I didn't realize that you can have no reconciliation when you're in a space where there's not justice. And I didn't realize that. And so I thought that if I removed myself, then they could, they could do that work. And so I got up and I picked up my book bag and I started to walk out of the room. And um, it was then that, that this young woman, Christian, um, turned to me and said, Hannah, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to have to ask you to sit back down. And I sat back down. And I never got up again. And the work that we do on one another in community, the work of telling the hard truths, the work of understanding that what some of us are experiencing is not what all of us are experiencing, um, was necessary part of the journey for where I am and what I'm doing today. Um, to understand that as white people we want comfort. We want the conversation to be just slightly uncomfortable but not so uncomfortable that we actually have to change everything about how we live and breathe and are in this nation. Um, and so as I put it, we, we, um, we make of reconciliation a period that we put reconciliation in the half-finished sentence that justice is trying to write. That there is still a conversation going on and we try to put it, we try to call for peace, we try to put an end to something that needs to continue. Um, and so that's the lesson that I learned from, from them um, at Duke, um, which we'll, you'll see play into this conversation. Thank you. Um, thank you, Hannah. Um, I, uh, I know Christian well. I can hear her saying that to you. I'm so glad she did. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad for her ministry as well. Uh, but uh, moving on, so my second question is to bring us um, a knowing that you were a person who sought 
more avenues of racial reconciliation, rec racial reconciliation between when we were uh, graduate students together and then uh, the events that occurred um, in the summer of 2015. But I do want us to uh, walk that way and talk about um, that week that you, um, if you just share with us how you learned of Sandra, Brand, Sandra Bland's arrest and death, um, how you made the choice to go to sit in front of the jail, and why, um, why that turned into a vigil. Why did that turn into a vigil, and what did you do there? Um, yes, yeah, so in the, in the summer of 20, in the summer of 2014, mm -hmm. um, there was a young man, Michael Brown, who lost his life in Ferguson, Missouri. And I think a lot of, a lot of people noticed um, through social media and through their personal relationships that there was a lot of people that were struggling to um, respond with mourning. We call one another brothers and sisters in Christ and yet when one of us dies um, it sometimes appears that we cease to be family because we see no tears um, for certain lives. And so um, in the summer of 2014, we began a, a program, a movement called um, The Shout, where we um, were um, recruiting artists to help us to understand what, um, what our identity as family is. Um, and so we, um, we brought in folks to answer questions, and we started with that question, um, who is your family, um, and asked the artists to answer that, that question for us. Um, and out of that, we continued to ask questions for the next two years um, on a monthly basis, and, um, and to meet and to talk about issues in our community on a weekly basis. And um, the, um, when Sandra Bland died, she was friends with many of our poets. Um, so a lot of our poets had gone to college with her to Prairie View A&M University. And um, when she died, a lot of her friends, um, they, they began to post up a hashtag, what happened to Sandra Bland, um, because they didn't believe that the official story could be true. Um, in keeping with the woman that they knew. Um, that, that they didn't know what had happened, but they knew that something had happened. Um, and so my poet, the poets that I work with were sending me texts with questions and thoughts and articles um, and really demanding a response. You know, They said, this past couple years we've been talking about getting people to take action, so basically what are you going to do? Um, and so on... Um, on the afternoon of, of Wednesday, uh, she died on, on Monday, and on Wednesday, um, we, uh, I went to meet a friend, uh, a friend for coffee, and I went into a really deep, dark place. Um, and when my friend arrived, um, I just was in silence for like an hour, and she waited. Um, she waited while I sat there, and finally I lifted up my head, and I said, we are going to do something. And everything is going to change. Um, and so that night we wrote what happened to Sandra Bland on a candle 
and we drove out to the Waller County Jail, which ended up being on a back dirt road in a scary dark part of Texas, which I was not expecting. I thought it'd be like on a main street somewhere. Um, but we pulled up to the jail in the darkness and we lit the candle um, and we said some prayers and we expected that that would be all we did. We didn't plan to do what we've done. We expected that would be all we would do, would be to send a message. And a voice came over the loudspeaker from inside the jail and said, um, blow it out. And so a, an employee from the jail came out and, um, and blew out the candle. And uh, we could hear voices in the darkness behind us. We didn't know. In the morning, we saw there was a house with, with children, but we didn't know what the voices were. But we were a little bit unsure of what to do. Um, but we decided to relight the candle. So we went back and up to the door of the jail, and we relit the candle. Um, and that night, I went home, and, um, and uh, I'm looking for my phone here. It's right there. <laughs> Uh, I went home that night, and um, my friends had been watching these videos that Sandy had been making. She made um, 32 videos in the six months before her death. A lot of people have only seen a couple of them. But in them, she talked about her faith, and she talked about her activism, and about the fact that if we want to see change, we each have to individually take responsibility to do something. Um, so I started to play her, her videos, and I'm going to try to play some audio. There's something out there that we can do. We can stop sitting around and just saying, oh, well, maybe next time. Or, oh, well, we knew that was going to happen. It's time to stop knowing that that was going to happen. And it's time to start doing something. So, I'm going to go to bed, but I just want everybody who watches this to know that I truly thank God for you. I thank God for you taking your time um, to watch this video. And I'd like to plant the seed in in you. Um, there will be more of these to come. There will be more Sandy Speaks. And I want y'all's feedback. I need I need you. I need y'all's help. You know, I can't do this by myself. I need you. So when she said those words, um, I need you. I can't do this by myself. I need you. Um, we took that to heart. Um, and she was right. She had answered a calling in January of 2015, the winter before. She had gotten up and made that first video with curlers in her hair because she knew that God had a purpose for her and that she had to obey. And she began immediately. Even though she wasn't camera ready, she was about to go to bed, but she began to live out her calling immediately. She didn't know the urgency, and she didn't know how God would use her words or why she needed to do it. But she started, and she made 32 more videos after that one. And when we heard those words, I need you, I can't do this by myself, we knew that whether or not she knew at the time what she meant, that God was calling through her. Um, and so the next day we got up and we went back to the jail with a sign that said, a big yellow sign that said, what happened to Sandra Bland? Um, and the next day we got up and we went to the jail. And the next day we got up and we went to the jail. And we planned to be there until Sandra's family could come um, to receive her body um, so that she wouldn't be alone. Um, and that's what, what, that's what our plan was, to do it for a week until they came. 
Um, and when her family came, um, I looked them in the eyes and I said, I'll do this as long as you need me to. And um, I didn't plan to say that. Um, but I got up the next day and went to the Waller County Jail and got up the next day and went to the Waller County Jail. And I was told if I went back uh, to the Waller County Jail, I'd lose my job. So I got up the next day and I went to the Waller County Jail. And about a month in, um, the sheriff decided he was going to get rid of us and he'd throw his weight around a little bit. And uh, he, uh, he came out when we came on the morning of August 10th and he, uh, he, he uh, told me to go back to the Church of Satan. Um, and uh, he came out again. He came out three times that day and told me to go back to the Church of Satan. And uh, finally he said, you know, when you come back in the morning, things are going to be different. Um, so we got up the next morning and we went to the Waller County Jail. And um, when we got there, there was a couple white women in a car and I was kind of afraid what they were going to do to us, but they actually were crying, and they're like, you don't understand. You don't understand how dangerous these men are. Um, we told them we'd be careful, and we got out with our sign, and we sat in front of the Waller County Jail. And um, the, uh, the sheriff had erected uh, these, it was kind of like a child had built a fort. Um, he had erected barricades around the areas we were sitting with, like, you know, um, railroad ties soaked in tar um, and so we couldn't sit there where there was that little bit of shade and it was like 110 degrees um, so we went down to a tree at the end of the parking lot and uh, um, and then we went home that night and before we got home I got a phone call um, the sheriff's cut down the tree you were praying under it's a 45 minute drive and it was a very large tree which means in some kind of comedic evil sense, they kind of must have run out of the jail with chainsaws and like took the tree down. Um, I didn't believe it and I asked for proof. So one of my friends went and took pictures and sent me the pictures of the branches neatly stacked that they had really cut down the tree. So we got up the next morning and we went to the Waller County Jail. And we got up the next morning and we went to the Waller County Jail. And we got up the next morning and we went to the Waller County Jail. Um, and, um, you know, eventually they, they put in s steel barricades and they paved the parking lot and they did all kinds of different games to try to get us to stop. Um, but we got, up, um, we got up for 80 days and kept going to the Waller County Jail. Um, and they learned that, that they, couldn't, they couldn't make us stop. Because if you remember, back when I was in seminary, I tried to get up from the table of struggle because it seemed like it was going to cost me too much. And there's a young woman named Christian Peel who said, Hannah, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to have to ask you to sit back down. And so I got up every morning for 80 days and I sat back down. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, the next question I have for you is um, to ask you the question of about how you came to the choice to move. You know, you sat for 80 days in vigil, prayer, in front of that jail, um, but something 
happened to where you made the decision that you were still walking with them by standing up and moving? And so my question is, yeah, what, what led to your choice to get up and, and move? Um, and in, in the midst of that, if you could address why you um, chose to uh, take advantage of social media, how this became sort of a national media campaign um, where the name of Sandra Bland started popping up on um, primetime television shows in, you know, and uh, different, it, it, like, dramas, not just, you know, 60 Minutes, but, you know, that just, it, she, her name became part of the national dialogue and language. And so, yeah, if you would just talk about your choice to move and also the choice to broadcast who she is across the nation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that our, our understanding of what we were doing changed with time. And so initially, like I said, I'm, I just couldn't stand the thought of her being there alone. Um, and then, of course, you know, we were doing it so that her family would have presence down there. And then, you know, we were doing it because we wanted folks in Waller County to know that whatever they said about her, there was going to be a person in a collar sitting right in their face, letting them know that they could say she was a criminal and they could say she was, uh, you know, used marijuana. They could say whatever they wanted, but the church was not ashamed of her and that we were proud to claim her as our own um, and that God was watching. Um, and Sandra was a member of the AME Church, a very involved member of DuPage AME, which is one of the more significant congregations in the denomination, and she was arrested in front of, the, uh, in front of an AME church. Um, so she was basically arrested on the campus of an HBCU, in front of an AME church, on the campus of the HBCU that she had graduated from in front of the doors of a church in her own denomination. Um, and I think that God couldn't make it any more clear that we as a church had a very serious responsibility um, and that all of the young folks who had been using social media and had been mourning um, the lives that had been lost and had been grieving that they did not see their pastors in the streets with them, um, that this time they would that this time there would be, the church would be there, um, that this time there would be a pastor present. Um, and so um, I hoped that the 40th day would be the last day because Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days and the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. And so the Sunday before the 40th day, I, I preached at Hope AME where, where I work now and I said to the congregation, you know, we're coming up on the 40th day, and I don't know what's going to happen, but the walls are going to come down. This is going to be, you know, this is it. I felt so much meaning around that number 40. And we reached the 40th day, and nothing happened. And we, <laughs> we got up the next day, and we went to the Waller County Jail. Um, so we did it for 40 days twice. We did 80 days. Um, but around about the 80th day, um, you know, um, somebody very close to Sandy kind of said, um, you know... I think Waller County's got the point. And this justice issue, its roots run very deep. 
And there's a lot of facets of injustice and facets of what happened to Sandra and why it happened. Um, so maybe you could kind of work on that other stuff too. Um, and right. so, what led you, for example, to the Austin State right. Police Department? So, That's so on the, the 80th, here's the fun part, y'all. There's so much meaning in so many parts of this. On the 80th day, the sheriff finally came up with a plan for how he would finally get rid of us. He covered the parking lot in hot black tar so that we couldn't step on it. And they said that they had it in the plans to repave the parking lot. So they put hot black tar all around the jail so we couldn't come close to it. He did not know that we weren't planning to come there on the 80th day because we had already decided that on the 80th day we would go to the Austin State Police Headquarters uh, two hours away um, and that we would sit there um, because the officer who arrested Sandra was a state trooper. He wasn't, he wasn't local police. And so the state, the state trooper's office had a responsibility for what they themselves... There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, you know, conversation and chatter, especially on social media, about who was in the wrong. Um, but even the head of the Texas Department of State, Public Safety, um, who runs those offices, said that it was the officer that was in the wrong. There's not, there's not a debate. People are debating whether Sanders should have done this or Sanders should have done that. Even the head of the Department of Public Safety said the officer was the one in the wrong, and that's why he fired him. And that's why when he appealed his firing, he upheld his firing. He, he has, and so we decided to go there and to, um, we sat there and uh, in front of the DPS headquarters and uh, until they fired him. Um, and, um, and, and then we, the, the folks continued to sit there for the rest of the year, um, reminding them that we were watching and to uphold uh, that termination decision. And if, if the officer gets the charges against him dropped, because he's been charged with perjury for lying and saying that he had a reason to arrest her when he didn't. So he's been charged officially with perjury. There's a criminal trial. And um, if he's able to get the charges dropped, he will appeal again and try to get his job back again. So we continue to have a presence protesting in Austin. Um, did that answer your question? Why social media? Why social media? Why, yeah. Um, where else did you all decide to go then? Because you'd started to talk about how someone nudged you and said, hey, this injustice, it's deep and it seems yeah, to so be we had everywhere. A presence. Where else did you go? We had a presence with, um, we kind of followed, we followed the lines of everywhere that this went. So we sat through the grand jury proceedings around her charges. We sat through the civil trial with her family. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also the judge who was overseeing um, the um, criminal trial for Sandra, um, was also overseeing the case of another woman, um, Yvette Smith, who was shot in Bastrop County. So we sat through her trial with, with her family um, as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of getting up and trying to communicate and educate folks that don't understand so like even the bail system, a lot of folks who have never understood, dealt with, you know, having a member of their family arrested, you know, very quickly blamed the family and didn't realize how complicated it is if you are on the other side of the country and somebody is in a small country jail um, on the weekend when the staff is low uh, to deal with that situation is pretty much impossible. 
Um, and so we tried to understand and communicate and educate people about all the different aspects of, of this case, which led to calls for national bail reform um, and, and a lot of changes of jail policy in, in the state of Texas. Um, that's legislation is underway around that. Yeah. And so through all of that, you said to me at one point in time when we were discussing how you learned to have a solidarity that doesn't break with Christian Peel, our, our friend, but Christian was alive and was in the room and could sit you and, and tell you. Um, you said to me that during this time it was like you were with Sandra and trying to be in solidarity with her although she had died. Um, and so could you say more about that side of, of these days, what it was like to try to be in a solidarity that didn't break with Sandra Bland? Mm-hmm. And yes, and I suppose that we tried to do things the way that she would have wanted. So we watched her videos and we watched her own technique. So like in one of her videos that she makes, she goes to the mall and she's doing some activism there and a young, you know, she gets, you know, the security wants to take her out of the, out of the mall and a young man stands up for her and then he gets taken out of the mall and he might lose his job at the food court. And so she says, if they fire him, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to sit here every day until they give his job back. So in us sitting there every day, we were doing, you know, what she said she would have done for someone else, right? Um, and, you know, she never had a YouTube channel. She always posted stuff on Facebook, so we posted stuff on Facebook. And, you know, when there was moments when we didn't really know what to do, we would watch her videos and try to figure out what, what would be honoring to her, what would she want us to do. Um, and so um, we worked to amplify her voice. We played her videos, we shared her videos, and when people got tired of watching them, then we created memes with quotes from her with her face and we started projecting her videos onto unusual surfaces like the campus buildings and, uh, and continuing to work uh, to use any kind of thing resources at our um, disposal to help her um, to carry out her calling and to make sure that her voice was still being heard um, to amplify her um, and um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a result, because it was Founders Day yesterday, I have to say that, you know, that her mother and I were brought into Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated, which was Sandra's sorority last spring. Um, and so we now, of course, also work with her, with her sorority. Um, so um, it's been over a year of this work for you. Um, and there has been both the developments that you mentioned here and also some development, um, a very large settlement um, is being brokered between the family of Sandra Bland and the Waller County um, justice system about a wrong, you know, to settle over a wrongful death lawsuit. And uh, so that brings about some closure um, however, in a lot of ways that you've mentioned, the work still has to continue. And so I wondered um, if you would tell us, you know, where and what are you being led to now? Um, what sort of message or activities do you feel called to continue on this path of solidarity um, to call for solidarity um, this morning, and we learned a lot about sustained discomfort 
as a as a um, a congregation. So if you could tell us where yeah, where I think you're feeling called to now. Yeah, I, I think that my my primary task with Sandra was to amplify her voice, um, to make sure people watched her videos, to make sure people saw her as more than that mugshot that they tried to portray her as, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really my focus. And um, as some folks in Houston said, I, I, I caped so hard for, for Sandra that people uh, began to forget my name. <laughs> um, and so, um, I mean, still right now today, 16 months later, every night before I go to bed, I retweet every tweet about Sandra Bland. Uh, every night for 16 months. So it's been very um, taken all of me and every bit of every bit of anything that I had to give. Um, and so you know folks did start to mistakenly call me Sandra and things like that in Houston, um, which was kind of uh, um, a little morbid. Um, and so I am trying to, I guess now, to, um, to learn a new chapter of Walking with Sandra. Obviously, she'll always be a part of my life, and especially now as my sorority sister. Um, it'll always be a part of the work that I do with Sigma Gamma Rho, Sorority Incorporated. Um, but um, I also need to remember who I am, remember to take care of myself, um, and, um, and, and remind, you know, remind my friends and family that I'm still around. <laughs> um, I think that specifically the work that I'm, that I feel responsible to do is to challenge white people to commit to a lifestyle of sustained discomfort. Um, I don't have anything to teach people of color about oppression because I have not been on the receiving end of it. Um, but I do think that there's some very important conversations that we need to have as white people about our role in, um, in our, our complacency and in, in maybe not always um, giving it our all um, and protecting our, you know, prioritizing our comfort. You know, I see the whole this whole conversation that we've had in this nation around Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter is quite simply to me white supremacy linguistically expressed. And by that I mean the um, rejection of the leadership of young black people who have chosen the words that they want to use for their movement. And white people have refused to submit to their leadership and have instead said we get to choose what words to use um, and have tried to take control by changing those words. So I have zero patience for All Lives Matter. Um, and, um, and I don't have a lot of patience for politeness and niceness and good intentions because, you know, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And um, we have been so polite for so long that we have, um, you know, we, I was just talking, talking at lunch with Mark about the fact that that sometimes um, we have been so concerned about giving everybody the space to speak that we have let hate get far too much root in our nation, right? 
Um, and so we need to stop being polite. We need to stop being nice. And I, I don't mean to be rude or to be cruel, but to be clear and to be direct and to be honest um, and um, not to avoid saying something because uh, it will make someone uncomfortable because, quite honestly, there are people who have lived and died in discomfort in this nation. And there are people today who will live and die in discomfort in this nation. And so we, as, as, as white people, have no reason to think that we should get to escape that discomfort. Um, and that, you know, we should only have to share in a tiny teaspoon of what others experienced. And then we should get to get, go home and not deal with it anymore until we choose to enter the conversation again. Um, but that my work now is to challenge people to, to this kind of sustained discomfort um, that I try to remain committed to, God give me strength. Um, that, um, that we commit to discomfort until the day we die. Not to think, um, you know, things will, be, things will be better. Thank you. They will be better. Thank you for your song. They will be better. And every day God is making all things new. Every day. And there is always reason to hope. But um, at the same time, um, we will not see things come equal. We will not see um, I, I think that without great revolution, which is possible, um, we will not see things made equal in our lifetimes, which means that we have to um, as white people understand that this is not something we're going to work on for five years or ten years but that this is something we have to commit to until the day we die. And I'm committed to this until the day I die, whether that be tomorrow or whether that be um, in, in 50 years. Um, and so my work now is to try to chip away at our complacency and to recruit you to the revolution, really, um, of, of sustained discomfort. Because um, you know that there is great joy in, in doing the right thing and being in God's will. And that 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 um, that is more than enough of a reward um, to to know that you are doing the right thing. Um. Thank you. Thank you very much.
for this episode of Wayfair today. Uh, what a wonderful evening this was. Like Dr. Levin said at the beginning in her introduction, sometimes the truth is a breath of fresh air, and sometimes it can be uncomfortable. And sometimes just what we need is that discomfort. 
But it's not a discomfort that's rooted in hopelessness, but rather it's, it's rooted in a faith that our solidarity with one another beyond race and religion and nationality can help to create a better world. So thanks to Dr. Levins for organizing this event, to Baptist Seminary of Kentucky for co-sponsoring this event with us, and to the University of Kentucky Black Voices Choir. You have blessed us so much with your music and with your participation with us. Thanks also to Reverend Hannah Bonner for traveling to share with us her journey for justice. And thanks to you for listening. Central Baptist Church is a loving, healthy, and progressive gathering of Christians in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find out more about Central at LexCentral.com. Live sound, engineering, and recording was done by Justin Levins. This episode was produced by me, Aaron Austin. You can check out our other podcasts online and give us a rating on iTunes. That'll help other people to find us. Thanks so much for journeying with us today on Wayfarer. Peace to you. Thank you.